to our passage for today. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you or your phones, you can turn to Matthew chapter 24. We'll be going from verses 36 to 51. I'll give y'all just a second to get there. All right, let us go ahead and hear the word of the Lord. Verse 36 says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. Then two men will be in the fold. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will, and, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Good morning. We are wrapping up our Lenten series today in chapter 24 of Matthew. Jesus has been unpacking what life is going to be like for his disciples in between his first and his second comings, and so far he's promised that life is not going to be easy. He's promised that they're going to live in chaotic, uncertain times, times of national and natural disasters. Those are just going to be a regular part of the background noise of life. And he's told them that the disciples should expect in that world to be singled out for their allegiance to him and that they will be hated by all the nations for his sake. Now pause here. Put yourself in Jesus' place for just a minute. If that's the kind of life that you are calling people to, what would you say next to help people respond to that world, to handle the heaviness of the picture that you've just painted? Wouldn't you kind of expect some kind of comfort you know, Jesus saying something like, I, I know this is really hard to hear. Let me put my arm around you. Let me soften this moment for you. Something like that. Or maybe something like, okay, let's make sure you know what to do so that you're okay. Here's how to protect yourself in that frightening world. Here's what you can do to minimize the risk. Jesus doesn't say anything like that. Instead, in a very dangerous world in which his followers really could lose their lives because they've identified with him, he calls them not to back down, 
but he calls them to action. And the reason that he gives is that they've got nothing to lose. We saw that last week. He promised that he himself will be coming back, and that he's going to do that to establish God's reign and rule over this earth, but he's also going to do that to gather them, to make sure that nothing that happens to them in this life jeopardizes what's most important, which is the life that's coming. So even, he says, if they lose their lives, which in one way or another we're all going to do, even if they lose their lives, they haven't lost anything of eternal value. And so in the face of a very scary world, they're not supposed, you and I are not supposed to try to go under the radar, to draw back out of fear of what might happen to you. Instead, you're to go all in following him because he's got you. In other words, what we have here is a call to action, not a call to pull back. You heard hints of that last week when he talked about the fig tree. He said, when you see the fig tree bud, when you start to see it leaf out, then you know that winter is over and summer is right around the corner. It's the sign that tells you summer is coming. But it's more than just a signal to interesting information. You're not supposed to look at it and go, oh, look, summer's coming. Instead, it's the signal that tells you about the future and about what you need to do now to get ready for the future. Because you know that summer is coming, you get ready for it now. And so what might you do? You might till the ground, break it all up. You might plant your crops now so that the summer rain and the summer sun produce a crop later. You don't do those kind of activities in the winter, be too early. But when the fig tree leaves, you know that summer is coming. And you know that you need to act now based on what is guaranteed to come from the sign that you see in the present moment. And you act now because if you don't, that's going to impact your future. It'll impact what you have to feed yourself and to feed your family. And so you have to act now in order to live well in the future based on the sign that the future is coming. Let me give us a little more modern example. Every spring I start looking around the trees in my yard, and I'm specifically looking at the maple trees. They bud earlier than most all the rest of them. And I watch carefully because I know that when I see the maple trees bud, I know something about the future. I know that when I see those buds that my allergies are just about to kick in, that my eyes are going to itch, my nose is going to get all clogged, my throat's going to be scratchy, and I know that I have a very small window between when the maple trees bud and my symptoms get really bad. So when I see those buds appear, I start taking my allergy medicine. I act now on the sign of what the future will bring. And a really foolish way to live would be to see the buds come out and do nothing. To see the sign and ignore it. To see the sign and not get ready for what the sign points to. Jesus has talked with us already about what the signs are. We know what to look for. Wars, natural disasters, the destruction of the temple, destruction of Judea, all things that say that the very next step in redemptive history is his return. He's given us the signs, and now finally, in today's passage, he tells us how to live in light of the signs that we see. He calls us to action. He calls us to a way of life as we follow him during this very dangerous period of time that we live in. But as you read this passage, you also realize that he gives, he says there are obstacles that can get in the way of what he calls us to. 
So today we'll look at three things. Number one, we're going to look at the obstacles to living as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. Second, we're going to see what the remedy for dealing with those obstacles is. And then third, we'll look at the reason, the motivation for why we should embrace the remedy. Three things today. The obstacles to living as a Christian in this broken world, the remedy to those obstacles, and the reason why we would adopt the remedy. Point one, obstacles to living the Christian life. Jesus lists three of them for us. He tells us first, verse 37, that as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. That's an absolutely frightening couple of sentences. Jesus takes us back to one of the worst judgments of God on the earth, the time when he poured out some of his wrath, not all of his wrath, but some of it. And some of it was enough to flood the entire earth and wipe out all animal life. And he did that because, as Genesis chapter 6 tells us, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Every intention of every human thought was only evil continually, all the time. People made in the image of God did not image him in the ways that they thought about life. Instead, in their heart, they thought constantly about how to live in ways that had nothing to do with him. Nothing to do with what he's like. Nothing to do with his kind of grace, with his kind of love, with his kind of mercy or kindness, his kind of justice, his kind of beauty. Instead, they lived continually for something else. And so God judged the earth because the images of God did not accurately reflect him. He made people to be like him. That's our purpose. But people rejected him, rejected his purpose, and in doing so, they forfeited the life that he gave them. Now, he did find someone that he approved of, Noah. God told Noah to build a boat large enough to rescue some of the creatures that he had made. Noah did this. It was a huge boat, one and a half football fields long. We're not told how long it took to build, but what? It's got to be decades at least. And how did his neighbors respond to this really huge advertisement of coming just judgment that they saw for years? Jesus says that they ate and drank and got married. They did ordinary things. And they found so much life in those ordinary, everyday things that verse 39, they were unaware of what was going on. Unaware that God was grieved and angered. Unaware that judgment was coming. They saw the sign and ignored it because they were absorbed by the present moment. These things were so much more interesting to them, so much more engaging, that they pushed what they saw into the background. And notice here that there's nothing that's inherently evil in what they're doing. 
eating, drinking, getting married. But they did those things with hearts whose thoughts and intentions were only evil all the time. They engaged those things in ways that God would not have. They found more life in those things than they found in God. Those things were more fulfilling to them than life with the source of life. Convicting myself here as I talk. They chose those things over life with God, and God gave them what they wanted, an absence of real life. See, hearts that turn from God have to turn to something else instead, and they turn then to what God has made. It's the only other thing to turn to. This is one of the things that will keep you from having a full Christian life. It's having a heart that turns to the ordinary, everyday things of life and gets absorbed by them, that finds more life in them than you find in the God who made them. It's one obstacle to living as a Christian. Second obstacle is that you become sleepy. Jesus tells his disciples, verse 42, Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And then he tells them about a guy who didn't know when a thief was going to break into his house, didn't take any precautions. Apparently, verse 43, did not stay awake, and so he allowed his house to be broken into. And Jesus says, don't be this guy. Don't let yourself go to sleep. Don't stop thinking about the fact that I will return. Don't let yourself think that life is just going to keep on going the way that it always has. Because there's going to be a sudden break that happens in this world. Something different from what has been happening. So effectively, he's saying, if there's a longish period of time before I come back, don't let that delay lull you into sleeping, into thinking that you can let your guard down. Don't let yourself go to sleep. Don't grow skeptical, thinking that I'm never going to return. Now, the Apostle Peter picks up this idea in his second letter. In chapter 3, he warns us, just like Jesus does. He tells us that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter goes on, for they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And you can hear Peter there reflecting on the flood, the judgment of God, that suddenly broke into the world, deluged this world with water. That at one point in time, there was an interruption in the way that things had been. An interruption that took people by surprise back then, but it's an interruption that people now deliberately overlook, that they intentionally forget about, so that they can assume that life will just keep on going like it has been. And that way of thinking is a temptation for anyone who wants to follow Christ. It's not like the first obstacle to be absorbed by this world, but it's to 
continue to assume that this world will be what it always has been, that tomorrow will be just like today, which was just like yesterday. It's to assume that this world has an independent existence, that it does not depend on God to exist, and it assumes that he will not break into it one day to judge the evil in it, just like he did before. It's to live factoring God and his judgment out of the picture, to live as if the stuff in front of you is more real than he is. It's to sleepwalk through life, making an assumption about the future that you have no rational reason for making, assuming that each and every new day will be just like any other, on and on and on into eternity. What gives you the right to assume that? It's to forget that Jesus will suddenly break into this world unexpectedly, like a thief breaking into a house. So first, you can't live the Christian life if you're absorbed by this life. Second, you can't live the Christian life if you're asleep to the reality, to the reality that Jesus will come a second time like he came the first. And then third, you can't live the Christian life if you forget that everything that you have has been gifted to you. Verse 45 talks about a master of a household who sets a servant over his household. Now think about the world of this servant for just a moment. He lives in the house, has access to food for himself, access to food for others, and there are certain relationships that he has with others. Why? Because all of that has been given to him. All of it, house, food, other servants, all of it belongs to the master of the household. None of it belongs to the servant. Instead, what he has has been placed in his hands by the master, and it's been given to him for the explicit purposes of using all that he has been given to serve the master's interests. And it's as though Jesus says, forget that reality. And verse 49 is inevitable. The servant will begin to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. He will take all the gifts and the advantages that he has and use them to achieve his own ends, to get what he wants out of life. And again, this is a huge temptation for us in the U.S. We have very little sense that we've been given what we have. Instead, as a country, we have an entitlement mentality. A mentality that says we should have certain things, that we deserve them, that they are owed to us, and that we can do whatever we like with what we have. That we can do with our bodies what we want to do. That we can do with our things what we want to do. Why? They're ours. And we've lost the sense that everything is a gift. We've lost the sense that not one of us asked to be born. <laughs> that life was gifted to us. That not one of us chose the minds or the bodies that we have. They were gifted to us. No one chooses their personality, their gifts, their talents. Yes, we can apply them, we can study hard, we can work hard, we can be rewarded for them. But take the same personality, the same gifts, the same talents that you have and transport them back in time, 900 years or transport them several thousand miles to a remote village up in the mountains somewhere, Tibet, Afghan Afghanistan. Transport them to another location and you would not have the same reward. The same lifestyle would not be open to you regardless of how hard you work, 
regardless of how hard you apply yourself. So the fact that not only do you have the talents that you do, but that you are in a place and time that allows you to use them in such a way that you flourish because of them, that's a gift. Something that you had no part in giving to yourself. Something that was handed to you. Forget that, however, and you will use all the great things that you've been given in order to get the life that you want, which often means that you'll take advantage of other people to get what you want. These three obstacles, being absorbed by this world as if this is all there is, thinking it will never end, and living like it's all yours to do with as you want, these three obstacles will keep you from living the Christian life they will keep you from following Jesus, and they will keep you from being of any value to the kingdom of God. That's point one, the very real obstacles to following Jesus. Point two, the remedy. The remedy is to find a way of living normal, ordinary life, the same kind of life as anyone else, but in a different kind of way, with a different intention. You realize Jesus is not talking here about anything out of the ordinary. Eating and drinking, getting married, these things are just part of regular life. They're things that are neither good nor bad in themselves. They are things that both disciples and non-disciples do. Things that we all have to do. Or Jesus talks here about households and possessions, households and relationships, normal things that everyone, disciple or non-disciple, has. Or he talks about daily occupations. Verse 40. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. And you realize there that there is nothing different about their life circumstances. They are doing the exact same things. They're probably even doing them together. Kind of uh, mill that Jesus references here is, is a hand mill, most likely one that took two people to operate. And so there would be a stone that revolved, and there would be two people who sat opposite each other, and the, they, they would pull, take turns pulling the stone toward themselves. So one person will pull halfway around to themselves, then the other person would take it and complete the rotation. They would go back and forth with each other. They're engaged in exactly the same activity, but one is taken and the other is left. In other words, it's not the things themselves that you do that make you a disciple or a non-disciple. It's the way that you do them that's important. It's the way that you approach them. And so the remedy here is not to divide life between good things and bad things, to try to define some things as good Christian things and other things as bad non-Christian things, and then say, these things over here are good, so if I just limit myself to these things, avoid these others, I'll be okay. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You realize, no. That's what it means to be religious. That's what religious people do. They create a list of things that are good and things that are bad, and they grade themselves on how, how well they are doing at restricting themselves to the good list. And so they feel better about themselves when they do good list kind of things, and they feel worse when they do bad list kind of things. And then they take that way that they feel and they transfer that onto God. Had a lot of experience doing this, was doing this this morning. 
They believe in that moment that he's happier with them when they've kept to the good list. And they believe that he's upset with them when they haven't. Very common way of living that has absolutely nothing to do with following Jesus. And you can see that as Jesus talks about the full range of normal life. And he's telling you that the difference between disciples and non-disciples is not that one group lives normal life and the other doesn't, that one group eats and drinks while the other doesn't, but that it's the way that disciples engage life, a way that is fundamentally different from someone who is not a disciple. That means you don't have to quit your job to be a disciple. But a disciple changes the way they approach their job. You don't have to change out all of your friends to follow Christ. You have to change the way that you approach your friends. You don't have to sell your house and move to a different neighborhood. Change what you eat. Change what you wear. What you have to do is engage each and every part of life with a different intention than people do who are not following Christ. You have to live with this active, present awareness that Jesus is coming back. And that changes then how you engage the ordinary things of life. You engage life now with the awareness that he is absolutely coming back in the future. So how do you overcome the first obstacle? What lets you engage normal life activities without being absorbed by them? It's remembering that in the future when Jesus comes, he does so to remake the world. And he tells you in that moment that this life is not permanent. It's the appetizer for the one to come. So don't get absorbed by this one. Instead, look for the one that he will bring with him when he returns. What about the second obstacle? What is it that will keep you alert and awake in this world? It's the awareness that Jesus can come suddenly at any moment. What about the third obstacle? What will keep you from self-indulgence? It's the awareness that not only is this God's world, but that Jesus is coming back to see what you've done with what he's given you. Being a disciple means that you engage the ordinary things of life now, anticipating that Jesus will come back in the future. And so you don't put your life on hold because Jesus is coming back. But you anticipate the future. You anticipate what Jesus has promised will happen, and you let that anticipation work its way back into time and shape how you spend your time in the present. You let the event of the coming of Christ shape what you're thinking about and how you're feeling now. You let it shape what you're doing now. One of his books, Sinclair Ferguson, talks about how John Wesley was once asked a question question was, how would you spend tomorrow if you knew Jesus was going to come back in the evening? How would you spend tomorrow if you knew Jesus was going to come back in the evening? Wesley took out his diary where he had written out all the appointments for the next day. He read through them, and he said, these are the things I would do tomorrow if I knew the Lord was returning then. That's how a disciple lives. You live in the present moment, laying out your appointment book, anticipating the future. Or you learn to ask a similar question. You ask, if Jesus returns while I'm doing whatever, will I be happy that I was doing that in that way when he comes back? In the right sense of the word, will I be proud of what I was doing 
Because, yeah, Jesus would be proud of me. Will I think well of what I'm doing? Or will I be embarrassed? Will I be proud or embarrassed by what I'm about to say to my friends if Jesus comes back while I'm saying it? Will I be proud or embarrassed by how I'm living with my spouse and my children if Jesus comes back while I'm living that out? Will I be proud or embarrassed by the entertainment choices I'm about to make if he comes back while I'm spending my free time? Will I be proud or embarrassed by what I'm about to do with food and alcohol if he comes back while I'm eating and drinking? Will I be proud or embarrassed by how diligent I am at work, by the amount of time I let work have in my schedule, by the projects I take on, if Jesus comes back while I'm at work? Live with that question in mind. If Jesus returns while I'm doing whatever, will I be happy with what he finds me doing? Live with that question. Keep it in your mind, and it will change how you engage all of the normal, everyday things in this life. That's point two. That's the remedy that lets you live like a Christian in this life with all the obstacles, which requires us then to think about point three, the reason why we would embrace that remedy. And we have to address this because it would be really easy right now to hear all of this and be motivated by what? by guilt, to have that sense that says, man, I am not measuring up. I'm failing. I know I don't live the way that I should. Honestly, I would be embarrassed if Jesus came back during most parts of my day. If he showed up in my house or at work or while I was online, I'd be ashamed of what he heard me say, saw me doing. So I better try harder be really easy to think that way. Really easy to react out of feeling bad right now. To want to get some of your act cleaned up so that you stop feeling bad. But what is that? It's just a religious way of dealing with a life that you're not proud of. It's an effort at self-reformation. It's an attempt to change your life so that you don't feel bad about yourself. And so you use guilt and shame to motivate you to do better. Or here's another way that we could fall off the rails today. Maybe guilt is not quite what you're feeling. Maybe it's more like fear. Fear that you're hoping will motivate you to try harder. This passage is clearly all about a future judgment. It's about a time when God does not hold back his wrath against sin and evil, but a time when he pours it out. And so Jesus here references the flood, that it swept people all away. And it indicates that there will be another worldwide judgment when he returns. Or he references a master who comes back and cuts the wicked servant in pieces, puts him in with the hypocrites. Or when Luke is giving us this account, tells us that he puts the wicked servant with the unbelievers, the non-disciples, in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Passage is about judgment, and it's a judgment that makes sense. See, if the obstacles to being a disciple have captured me, if I am caught up in daily life things, if I'm unconcerned about Jesus' return, if I'm taking advantage of everything that he's given me, I'm telling you something very important about me, about my heart, 
I'm telling you that Jesus is not very important to me. That I don't care if he comes back or not. That I really don't care what he thinks of me. I'm telling you that I don't want him, and it would only be reasonable then for him not to want me. Now, if you think about that long enough, think about what it means to not be with him, to be in a place of eternal torment, that might scare you enough that you think, I need to try harder, do better. I'll let fear motivate me. But guilt and fear, no matter how intense, are never enough to produce true goodness. They're not virtues. And so they don't have the power to make you live virtuously. What do guilt and fear do? They drive you into yourself. You look for resources so that what? So that you can just stop feeling bad or so that you can stop feeling scared. But that's an inward direction. It's not outward. Guilt and fear never drive you outward toward anyone. They don't produce a life of radical self-forgetting love that is only interested in someone else and in their well-being. Friend and I were recently at a restaurant, and the server missed something in our order. So when the kitchen staff brought, the, brought lunch to us, we pointed this out. Head waiter wound up getting involved. It, it really was not that big a deal. The server took it really hard. And she comped us an extra dessert along with the one we ordered. She apologized one more time as she brought this out, explained it was on the house, and she said, these are her exact words, I hope you appreciate it. I hope you enjoy it. And as she walked away, my friend and I looked at each other and said, wow, that, that was Freudian. I hope you appreciate it. That's what guilt and shame and embarrassment produce. They are powerful motivators that do not build relationship. Not even when you're trying to build a bridge with someone. They come out and then what? They take away all the joy out of what you've offered. <laughs> How on earth do you take joy in guilt dessert? Guilt will never motivate you to godliness because it moves inward to deal with bad feelings, not outward to care about someone else. And in that same way, it's never going to move you to the Lord. If you're only doing good things because you're scared of what he might do, cut you to pieces and assign you a place with the hypocrites. There is absolutely no way you can look forward to being with him. He's just scary. And I can't imagine anything worse than being eternally with someone that you're terrified of. That does not sound like heaven. So if guilt and fear can't motivate you to a good life, to thinking about whether Jesus will be happy with what you're doing when he returns, what does motivate you? It's the other thing that happens simultaneously here with judgment. That one is taken. That's the thing we talked about last week. That Jesus comes to take his people. He comes to gather his people. You hear it in this passage. He takes one from the field, one from grinding at the mill. It's the motivation that comes from knowing Jesus is coming back for me. It's knowing that he loves me that then moves me to want to love him. It's knowing that he loves me that moves me to want to do the things that he approves of, to do them in a way that he approves of. He loves me, and so I want to love him back by doing the kinds of things that, what, that he likes. 
the kinds of things that image him and his goodness. Not so that I feel good about myself, but because I want to live a life that brings him joy, not grief in his heart. My wife Sally gave me a great picture of this years ago. She's a New England girl, loves trees and mountains. The beach, eh, not so much. But she said to me years ago, I don't love the beach, but our family does. And therefore, it's really best for us as a family. And so we spent 25 plus years going to the beach for family vacations. We've gone other places as well. Why did we do that? Because that's what love does. It thinks about what is good for others. It thinks about what brings them joy, godly joy, and it does what it can to make that joy a reality. It moves really close to an attitude of your wish, as long as your wish is not sinful, as long as it's a good thing for you. Your wish is what? It's my command. Your desire is what I want to do. Why? <laughs> because I love you. I want my life to bring you joy, not grief, not sorrow. And that means that disciples don't look at Jesus coming back as threatening, as guilt-inducing, something that says, oh man, I, 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 I need to shape up. Instead, we look at his coming and we remind ourselves that the one who loves me more than anyone else ever has, that's the one who's coming because he loves me. And I want to love him back. I want to bring him joy. And if your heart is cold toward him this morning, if you don't feel that movement toward him, you don't want to bring him joy, if you don't feel like responding with love, what's the antidote? Look at him again. Look at him through the parable that he gave. He is the faithful and the wise servant whom the Father set over his household. He is the one who always gave the rest of their household their food at the proper time, who cared well for his disciples. He is the one who never indulged himself, never wasted his life, never lived for what he could get out of life. And for living that way, he should have been rewarded. Father should have arrived and blessed him. But in order to be fully faithful, to fully obey the Father and carry out what the Father gave him to do, Jesus did more than simply provide for the rest of the servants. He also took their place. And in doing so, he took the master's punishment on himself. He was cut in pieces for the unfaithful servants. He was assigned a place with the unbelievers that they deserved. He endured the agonies of hell for them, the full wrath of God's judgment against them. And he did that fully faithful to his Father in order to pay for the faithlessness of you and me. So that there is no more wrath for the faithless ones. And in turn, you learn that the Father was faithful to him, that the Father vindicated Christ for his faithfulness, that he set him now over all his possessions, that he raised Christ up and seated him in heaven at his right hand, that he placed everything under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, over everything for you, over everything for your sake. And because of that, his people don't fear 
him coming back. This is the one who's coming to gather you. The one who doesn't need you, but who wants you. The one who has saved you from being self-absorbed, uncaring about the future, consumed by this world. This one is coming. No one has ever loved you like that. He willingly died for you to give you back the life you forfeited. He died so that you could live. He could demand anything from you, and that would be completely reasonable. You couldn't refuse him. But what is it that he wants? He wants your heart. And to have your heart, he's given you his first. So if your heart is cold toward him this morning, look at his for you. Experience his heart for you. Ask him to let you know and feel his love. Let his love warm you until you don't want anything as much as you do him. We're about to celebrate what he did for us in communion. Let me invite you, take a few moments now. Talk to him. See his love, experience his love. Let that warm you as we get ready to share it together.